invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. You'll see in the bulletin that uh, I was planning to uh, read Isaiah 7 uh, only, uh, but in thinking about this passage um, within its wider context here, uh, we're actually going to have a bit of a longer reading. I'm going to read through chapter 9, uh, verse 7. And the reason for that is that I want us to see here, and I think this sermon will actually be a rather simple sermon, uh, but I would like us to see here the significance that children play in God's drama of redemption, the significance that children play in God's drama of redemption that takes place here in Isaiah. And uh, specifically, as these texts point us to the ultimate birth of the Son of God. As, as we read these passages, we'll probably hear verses that remind us of uh, verses in the New Testament that are associated with the birth of, of course, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I want to see the big picture here in Isaiah chapter 7 uh, and uh, through chapter 9 verse 7 as well. And so let's begin reading God's word there in Isaiah chapter 7. This is the holy and inspired word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So let me just give a quick comment here so we have at least some context for understanding these kings and nations. At this point in Israel's history, Israel has been split during uh, King Solomon's son's Rehoboam, his reign. Uh, Israel splits. You had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel at this point has made an alliance with Syria. And now they are pressuring Judah to join them. And this becomes for Judah in the south a test of whether they will trust the Lord or they also will begin to make these political alliances to, and by thinking that through them they could defend themselves. So that's some of the context here and it's going to play itself out in these following verses. So beginning in the middle of verse 1. Uh, Rather, going back, uh, we'll begin at verse 1 again. How about that? In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is Israel in the north, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highest way to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. 
Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because his people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the water of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his, his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we approach and enter and have now entered into the Christmas season, we may come into it with many expectations. It's a time of year in which cozy and comfort becomes a, a major theme, uh, maybe on the mug you drank your coffee from this morning from Target. We see lights, we see tinsel, we see plays, we see family, and it's a time in which we often seek out comfort and coziness. And yet it's surprising that some of the key passages that we read in the New Testament regarding Christmas, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, then when we begin to look back into their context, don't really have a cozy and comforting context. In fact, as we just read about here in Isaiah 7 through chapter 9, the context is one of confusion and one of chaos and one of crisis in which God gives the promise of children to be born. And we see these throughout uh, this passage. If I could just highlight them for you. I noted them before we read. But note, uh, in these uh, passages we just read, the focus upon God's promise to give them a child. You see, for example, in chapter 7, verse 14, in the midst of this political conflict, as Israel has made an alliance um, with uh, Syria, and now they're pressuring Judah, where the king, king David is, um, the son of King David is, uh, to join them, or otherwise to seek alliances with another nation, say Assyria or somebody else. In the midst of all of that conflict there, God gives this sign to King Ahaz, who is the son of David. Therefore, the Lord, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Later in chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah is told to um, go to the prophetess, and they conceive a son. And it says that the Lord said to Isaiah, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Um, a lot of babies have been born in this congregation. I've yet 
to see a parent bold enough <laughs> to pick this name, but we'll, I'm waiting for it still. And I don't think Susanna and I are that bold either, but we'll see. But Isaiah, right, is to bear a son with the prophetess and call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz as a sign of what God is to do. Furthermore, in chapter uh, 8, verse 18, again, God is summarizing kind of what's taking place here. Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And then finally, in chapter 9, verse 6, we have uh, one of the most well-known passages associated with Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we see all these passages that are going to find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ, surrounded by a context not of comfort and cozy, but of crisis. And that's our first point that we want to consider uh, today, the crisis of uh, these promises. And just to give you the other points up up front as well, we'll consider first the crisis, uh, the children, and then the consequences. Uh, But first, the crisis. And so just to get some bearing on what's taking place here, as I said earlier, um, previously in Israel's history, the kingdom had split. Israel has been split into the northern kingdom, and Judah was now the southern kingdom of Israel. And there was conflict, of course, between the two. And over time, Israel and the north made an alliance, a political alliance, with Syria, as um, Isaiah opens up with. And that these two nations now combined together and were beginning to pressure Judah to either join them, and by joining them they really mean by setting up a puppet king under the name of Tabil, as we read about in these passages, uh, to remove the son of David and to set up a different king in Judah uh, who would basically do the bidding of Israel in the north and um, Syria as well. And so King Ahaz in Judah has a test before him. Will he succumb to the pressure? Will he just give in? Or, as he thinks about, maybe there's another nation I can make an alliance with. And so now uh, the king Ahaz is seeking to make an alliance with neither Israel nor with Syria, but with the nation of Assyria. And so King Ahaz has these two options before him. Join Israel in the north or make a further political alliance with Assyria. And so these two options are before Ahaz. And into that situation, Isaiah comes forward as the prophet of the Lord. A prophet was the mouthpiece of God. He spoke on behalf of the Lord. And specifically, he often brought God's covenant uh, and the, uh, to bear upon his people, to remind the people of God's promises and to remind them of their obligation and responsibility to trust the Lord. And so as, as King Ahaz in Judah has these two options before him and thinking which one will be most, um, would bring most security and safety to his people, Isaiah steps forward and says, neither go with them in the north nor go and make an alliance with anybody else, but instead simply trust the Lord. In the midst of all of that, he, he, he is called to trust the Lord. You might say, well, why? Well, because God had given his promise to the house of David much earlier in history. We turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
King Ahaz, as a son of David, was to trust the Lord's covenant promise that he would be the one who would establish the kingdom, not through political alliance, but by faith in God and his promises, that God himself was their shield, not Assyria, and not Syria, that God himself would provide for them. So notice in 2 Samuel chapter 7, here God makes this covenant with David, often known as the Davidic covenant. Verse 8 says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. From David's body, of course, eventually came, as we're reading, but here, King Ahaz. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Fast forward a number of years to King Ahaz in the current situation, that promise still holds. God's word was still to be believed and trusted, that he would be the one who would establish the kingdom of David, that he would be the one who would secure his throne forever and ever. And therefore, King Ahaz, as he's tempted to go either with Israel in the north with Syria or make a different alliance with Assyria brought that promise into question. And as Isaiah presents to him the the call to trust the Lord and to remember the promise, Ahaz says that I don't want to hear it because he's already made up his mind. He's already decided he's going to go with Assyria rather than act in faith in trusting that the Lord would establish him. This is what's taking place in that dialogue in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10 where it says that the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, right? Ask of a sign that, that, that I might demonstrate that I, I am true to my word that I gave to my servant David long ago. Ask a sign to which Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Pious language But it really seems that it's only because he's already made up his mind that he will not trust the Lord. He will not trust his promise. And he's closed his eyes from it. And so in light of Ahaz's um, unbelief, in light of Ahaz's desire to now make an alliance not with, um, with Israel in the north, but with Assyria, and not to trust the Lord, God says that he will provide instead a sign. 
Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Right. So this sign is given in the midst of a son of David's unbelief. And in the midst of them succumbing to worldly power and seeking worldly alliances. That's the context and the conflict and the crisis in which this sign is given. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's within that context this Christmas prophecy is given. And so as um, the rest, of, we won't recount the rest of this history uh, here in terms of the context, but this begins to play itself out as Israel goes um, after, rather King Ahaz in Judah goes after, uh, makes this alliance with Assyria, uh, but God says that uh, they will be ultimately consumed. And so chapter 8 deals with the judgment that is going to come not only over these other nations, but over Judah itself as it describes it like a river overflowing its banks and eventually flowing like a torrent uh, to judge the the nation. And yet in the midst of that judgment, as we're going to see, there is also light and joy, which we'll get to in our third point. And so we've considered first the crisis, right? This is what's going on. And and it's an important test because it's a test of, of Ahaz, his faith as a son of David. It's a test that continues to face God's people in every age, even in our own day. As the psalmist speaks about, some trust in chariots and horses, but others, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's it's that test that Ahaz is facing in a unique sense as a son of David remains the religious test for God's people even today. It remains a test for us. Will we seek our security and safety in political alliance and worldly power? Or will we trust in the promise of God that he is with us, that his kingdom shall be established forever, and that his kingdom is eternal? And so as we think about that uh, crisis and that challenge, uh, it's within that, um, that context that we are to think about God giving us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that context, then, to our second point, we come now to the children that are to be born. The children that are to be born. And the first one, of course, comes in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the midst of this uh, conflict, God promises the birth, the supernatural birth of a child, and that his birth would be a sign That God is going to bring both judgment and joy upon his people. This is the very um, prophecy that is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, as you read about the birth of Christ there, uh, these very words are cited. It says there in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And in some sense, you get a recapitulation of what took place with a previous son of David, King Ahaz, one who was afraid 
one who would not receive a sign. But here, Joseph is called not to fear to take Mary as his wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the sign of Emmanuel is both a sign of judgment and a sign of joy. Christmas is a time of both judgment and of joy, as we're going to go on to see as well. Because the sign is given in response to their unbelief. And this child then was to be a sign that God was going to bring judgment upon his people. And yet we see that that, does not, that is not the only thing that the children to be born will signify. For, as we're going to see in chapter 9, God promises a child who will not bring judgment but joy. A child who will not bring darkness but light. If you look with me in Isaiah chapter 9 again, after he recounts this great judgment, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, thick darkness over the land, right, to, to describe the judgment of God, there's this great turn that takes place. Uh, very similar to, say, Ephesians, right? Dead in our trespasses sin, but God, right? So we get here, but, in verse 9, of chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious, he has lighted the way of the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. And this great turn takes place on account of a son, a child who is to be born, as it says in verse 6. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. Now, in the same way as we saw Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, so too here the same child that is to be born finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 12 through 17 is Jesus, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the one who is now commencing his public ministry, now echoes, again, the language of Psalm, uh, rather Isaiah chapter 9. It says there in Matthew 4, verse 12, When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so Isaiah sees both in chapter 7 and chapter 9 the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate son born of the virgin. He is the child born to us upon whose shoulders will be the government 
He is the one described here as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And that his coming is both a sign of joy and judgment. His coming, his birth, is both a sign of darkness and light. And that's what Isaiah wants us to see. And as we look at the big picture here, we uh, are able to see as well. Is a judgment for those who trust in political power and do not have eyes of faith. Right? And we see this play itself out, and we continue to see it play itself out in our own day as well. Those who will not humble themselves before a, the King Jesus do so because they do not trust that he is who he says he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. They will not receive a humble Savior as God has provided him, but seek instead power and seek instead, um, in an earthly sense, one who would be their Savior. In Christ's birth, he is born to a lowly virgin in a no-name town, and yet he is the Savior of the world. And his glory today is hidden from the eyes of the world, requiring humility to receive it. And therefore, the Christ, for those who reject him, is a sign of judgment for the world. But that same son is also a sign of joy for those who humble themselves to see with eyes of faith that he is the fulfillment of God's promise. That the one who would be the savior of the world would not be those who is born in, king, in a king's palace, but one in a lowly manger. One who is able to recognize that it's not the wisdom and the power of this world that saves, but it's the wisdom and power that comes from God that saves. You see, the same sign, the same child is both a sign of joy and judgment, a sign of darkness and of light. Jesus speaks of this when he praises the Father for hiding the things of salvation, his true identity, from the wise and understanding, from the proud of this world, but has revealed them to little children, revealed them to babes, revealed them to those who approach him with humility to receive the Christ, born in a lowly manger, and through his humility has received all glory and honor. And so the Christ of Christmas, the Christ who is born, as we are presented with him, stands for joy for those who will believe upon him, those who, like the Magi, will come and kneel before that king, offering all their gifts, But also for those who refuse this child, he is a sign of judgment. And such wisdom is only wisdom that can come from God that overturns the wisdom of this world. A child in a manger, a child from a no-name town. That's often the objection to Jesus we hear throughout the gospel. What good comes out of Nazareth? They're looking to the palace. They're looking to places of dignity. They're looking to places of power and prestige in the eyes of the world. That's where the Messiah is going to come. That's who the Messiah is going to look like. And therefore they were blind to the true salvation that God was bringing in this child born Christmas Day, born a king, born to set his people free. It's he who will do so and no other. And so these are the children as signs and portents that Isaiah speaks about. A sign of joy for those who believe and a sign of judgment for those 
who reject this son. And so then, what are the consequences uh, of this for us as we come to our final point? What's the consequences of this sign that has been given? Well, first and foremost, it calls us then to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that He is God's salvation. That He is the one who will save His people from their sins. That He is Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. And therefore calls us then to humble ourselves and no, to no longer view security and safety through the lens of the world, but instead to believe and to trust God's word, to have faith in his promise and to have faith in his son. First and foremost, that is what Christmas calls us, not merely to goodwill towards men, not merely to good deeds. Yes, let's show love and show the joy of Christ this Christmas to those around us, but first and foremost, it is to believe upon Jesus, to receive him and recognize that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And therefore, it calls us to wholeheartedly rely upon the Lord. King Ahaz failed that test as the son of David. King Ahaz was one who instead went after political power rather than trusting the promise of God. But let us be a people who wholeheartedly rely upon the word of God as it points us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us also then pursue humility before God as he hides his salvation from the proud and wise of this world, but reveals it to those who are like children. Let us pursue humility, childlikeness, as we live as his people in this world. And let us also walk by faith, trusting in his word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And let us bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Just as his glory was hidden in the manger, at least from from an earthly perspective, so too his glory remains hidden today from the eyes of the world. He is in heaven. He is there seated at the right hand of God. And his glory is seen only by, by those who look through the lens of his word today. And so let us then live for God's glory, a glory that is hidden from the eyes of this world, but a glory that is ultimate and a glory that is eternal. And so as we think about the coming of Christ, a child that has been born to us, a sign of joy and judgment, we, all, we also we cannot disconnect his birth from his coming again. We cannot disconnect his birth from who he is today and what he will do in the future when he comes again. So I want to conclude with some of the words from the Belgian Confession, Article 37, uh, that deals with the coming again of Christ. And it says that on that day, the Son of God will confess their names, the names of his people who have owned him today, who have trusted in his word today. He will do so before God his Father and the holy and elect angels, And on that day, all tears will be wiped from their eyes and their cause, at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers, will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing 
in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of much chaos and tumult, uh, powerful nations in the world, that you speak a, a still small, with a still small voice and you provide in the midst of all of it a child uh, to be born, to be believed in. And so, Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Father, we ask that during this time of year, as we think about the birth of your Son, that we would see him as a sign of both joy and judgment, and that we might then believe upon him to receive such joy and to walk in the light that he brings. And Father, may we then desire his glory and live as his people in this world. And we look forward to the day when he comes again as King of kings and Lord of lords, riding on the clouds of glory, and that he comes again to bring us his people to share in his glory and to give us a joy beyond all comparison. And so, Father, raise our hearts and our minds, set them upon Christ our King, and may he be exalted, we pray in his name. Amen.